Let's go do a microphone. Anybody? 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 Oh, okay. Here we go. This is one of like the five. This is like one of the five people who's thankful we use the mic. So, um, I, I, I'll tell them frequently. It's like five people who really insist you got to use that mic. Okay. So, missing blanks, Lee. You got a bunch. Somebody okay. That's not one. good. Well, got a bunch of missing blanks. I think I got it from somebody else, but the first okay. one I had was uh, one D, was it claims? Claims. Claim to, claim to be, yeah. And then uh, two A2, who is in fact Jesus, right? Yep. Yeah. And then uh, John announces who is present. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Any other missing blanks? Okay, okay. Deb? Okay, one, synoptics, which is what we use to refer to the other three Gospels. You know, you know what a synonym is, right? Words that sound alike. The three Gospels that have all the overlap get commonly referred to as synoptics. Um, Deb's a New Englander, in case you couldn't tell from that accent. And Natalie, what you missing? Two A one anointed. Messiah. I probably didn't say them. It's really probably what happened. Three B, uh, Lord. All caps. Okay. Any other blanks missing? All of, Matthew, find a friend, dude. Sorry, that's too much. That's too much, dude. <laughs> um, what? what? <laughs> you want them all? I'll just let you borrow this, man. You can, you can. Yeah. Okay. I'll send you a screenshot. I'll take a photo and I'll. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There you go. There you go. Mm. Okay, qu- questions about what we covered yet, yeah, James? Okay. I had a question about baptism. Um, did it originate with John the Baptist, or is there any Old Testament precedent? Um, is it related to like Jewish rites of purification or anything like that? Okay, the question is um, baptism. Does it start with John, or is it in the Old Testament? There are Old Testament washings we know about. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Baptism, as John is doing, it does seem to be original with him. There's some extra biblical evidence in the intertestamental period of some things, but nothing in the law prescribed. What John is doing has no actual direct um, antecedent in the law. I mean, other than there are washings, with the notion of an absolute washing, and I, and I, and I think that based on the deep water, people going down with water, coming up out of the water, the fact that they're, they're being symbolically pictured as being cleansed, that seems to be something wholly new. Um, so there, there may have been some people doing that around. There's some argument in the commentaries. There's nothing in the Old Testament that's a baptism like that. Um, so is that your question or you got more? That's good. Okay. Okay. Are you Eric? Eric, hold on. I can go to Eric. 
the place where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, those guys, um, they were doing a bunch of ritual washing stuff. It was kind of popular in Jerusalem at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, like I said, there's some extra, there's, there's outside, when I say extra biblical, outside the Bible evidence that there were some things like that going on. The, prop, the problem is with timing, is figuring out who's first, who's second. What, a washing is going to look an awful lot like a baptism, even in John 2, right? So go to John 2. We, uh, we learn that the, the water that, that J- Jesus turns into wine was originally, um, where is it? Verse 6. Six stone jars of water for the Jewish rites of purification. Right. So the notion, though, of going down one person, and, and the biggest difference probably being you would cleanse yourself. The notion of someone else baptizing you, mm. which is the distinctive feature of baptism, is what I think is the piece that there's not clearly any precedent for. That you would go wash, that you would go cleanse. Yes. And so even though the law doesn't spell out exactly how they would do that, you know, the Pharisees had customs. Why don't your disciples wash? Paul right. and but the notion that you're baptized by someone, and that's key because John in the other Gospels objects to baptizing Jesus. I, you should be baptizing me, not me, you. So baptism is performed by someone on someone. That's the development that I'm not aware of any antecedent um, precedent for. Right. Um, And I, and I think part of that with the symbolism being I can't cleanse myself. I need another person to cleanse me with water. I, I think probably p- pictures some of that. Um, okay. Any other questions we got? Oh. Um, so in the spot where the, uh, the Pharisees question uh, whether John the Baptist is Elijah, um, and there's some confusion there, as to like, it sounds like he's almost being deceptive, even though what he's saying is literally true. Yeah. I just wanted to ask if it was possible. Uh, some time ago, you preached a sermon that was very interesting about the um, having ears to hear and how mm. God specifically judges certain folks who mm. are rebellious by making the message less intuitive and harder to grab onto unless you're earnestly digging deeper and pursuing is it possible that what we're seeing here is john the baptist is a little bit evasive in his answer because these men don't have ears to hear Mm. they're not actually looking for the real message and so god is not allowing them to get it without them that's one of that's yes the short answer is yes that's one of three lines i'd go down the three the fact that John nowhere claims to be Elijah, even to other anyone, like at every point in the Gospels, he doesn't, that's not, he likes being Isaiah 40. The three lines to try to resolve the tension, because there's no doubt the angel in John, in Luke 117, he will come in the spirit of Elijah, and then he quotes Malachi 4. Um, either one line is, John is not fully clear on who he is. And so inerrancy of scripture just tells us these things happened. It, it leaves room for John being confused. We know John is later confused about Jesus. Are you the one we should wait for or should we wait for someone else? So it could be John isn't fully clear, which seems a less likely because what the angel said, you'd imagine his parents would have told him. The other line being what you're saying, John is is trying to downplay that aspect or, or possibly confusion. I mean, how do you say you're in the spirit of Elijah, but I'm not Elijah? Because Elijah was taken up to heaven alive, John doesn't want to claim, I am that person. 
He is not that person. That person does show up in the Gospels on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? So Elijah does, like the, the Old Testament prophet Elijah, Elijah does show up in the life of Messiah on earth, and it's not John the Baptist. And the, the, the third line is what, so we say, he doesn't know. He is minimizing or not wanting to claim that. The, the third line would be, he, John, in the same way that Jesus, do you know what Jesus' favorite title for himself is? And it's a sneaky title. Sneaky, sorry. It is a covert title. Because for most of the Jews, he's not claiming any more privilege than Ezekiel. That's where Son of Man shows up the most, is Ezekiel. Son of Man, God tells Ezekiel. Except you go to Daniel, and there's another Son of Man who comes to the ancient of days, right? And when Jesus makes it clear he means that Son of Man, not Ezekiel, the chief priest tears his robes and says, what more do we need to hear? And they put him to death. So Jesus' title, Son of Man, is covert because for people with ears to hear, they're making the connection to Daniel. And for everybody else, they don't hear him making deity claims with Son of Man. Oh, yeah, it's just like Ezekiel, Son of Man. So John may just prefer Isaiah 40. Really, if you want to know who I am, I'm, Isaiah, I'm the guy in Isaiah 40. That's who I am. Clearly, that's John's favorite self-designation. Why he denies being Elijah is either along one of those three other lines, and I don't have a clear... And since John doesn't deal with that tension, because nowhere in John do we get he's Elijah, it's, it's, it's Matthew where Jesus says, if you'll receive him, and that's even enigmatic, if you'll receive him, he's Elijah. Well, what if they don't receive him? Like it's, it's even the, him being Elijah is kind of like, well, he sort of is Elijah if you receive him as Elijah. But yeah. That's, that's my long-winded answer of saying that's one of the three avenues I'd go down. Um, and I wouldn't really go down with the ignorant one very far. Other questions, thoughts? Oh, Bridget. Um, so going off of James's question, so how did the Pharisees, when they kind of ask him, why are you baptizing, how did they know that was a thing? They kind of use that phrase, but how did they know? Because because baptizes baptizes is not a in English it's a technical term because it's not we don't translate the word baptize we just take it over from Greek we transliterate it so the Greek word is baptizo which just means dip dunk immerse oh. common everyday word mm -hmm. which is why I like to refer to him as Dunkin' John um, you know Dunkin' Donuts um, <laughs> no so like in Acts when the ship is capsizes and goes underwater it's baptized now it can mean I mean, it doesn't settle the issue on on pouring versus dipping. But the most straightforward, like Calvin, who is all about sprinkling, freely admits in his commentaries the most straightforward generic meaning of baptizo is to dip. So they heard Don was dunking. Don was immersing. Don was bathing people. It had no technical cultic terminology to it that the word baptized does because the only time anyone uses the word baptized now is connecting to the New Testament because we didn't... It's one of the unhelpful words we didn't translate. I wish, kind of wish we did, because it comes across sounding nuanced and specialized when in Greek, it's just a standard term. Um, people were getting dunked, dipped, washed, immersed out in the wilderness. Why are you immersing? Why are you dipping? Why are you, whatever term you want to use. And it'd be no more specialized of a term than that. Um, so they heard, but, but th and this is characteristic with the Pharisees and the, and the big Jews in Jerusalem. Um, the higher-ups, they hear about stuff, and that's what they're concerned. Like, what's going on? What's all this hubbub? What's going on? Hey, some... And 
the, the tragic thing is they will, I mean, Jesus nails them with this in, um, in Luke, right? John's baptism, from man or from God. They never went on record either receiving John as a prophet or condemning him as a false prophet. They absolutely hedged their bets and they weren't either forward or against. Same thing with Jesus cleansing the temple. Are they, do, they think, do they say that was righteous of Jesus, good for you, or do they condemn him? What, uh, what, what type of uh, permission slips you got for that? You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's their concern. It, it's, it's terrifying in regards to how close you can be and, and lessons on missing the mark, right? So, um, that, anyway. Okay. Jeremy, if I can jump in here. Yeah. At, at one point, I took a little course, and there was an additional definition for baptism. Is there more than one word than or? There's just one Greek term. There's a word family. It'd be the noun and it'd be the verb. And okay. they both have baptizo. In the, the baptizo would be the verb. Um, there's just one. I can look it up in, in BDAG. But um, no, there's just one Greek term. Okay. Or one word, word, word group, word family. Just um, and uh, and it's got. I mean, it's got a broad semantic use because in the same way that we might say dip. It's, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I'll pull it up. Hold on. We'll just see what what BDAG's got to say. I guess what I heard. Yeah. Was the word to identify with? That's what it. That's what it. That's the significance of it. In like First Corinthians twelve, we were baptized by one spirit into one body. We were immersed into. We were united into. That, that's clearly the imagery of the spirit's baptism. You are united with, identified with, placed into, surrounded by, body of Christ. But that's a symbolic picture. So the, the picture would be taking something and dunking it, or dipping it, or pouring it, right? And then we use that metaphorically. It's this notion of uniting or, or being completely enveloped by something. Um, but in his first instance, it's a picture of cleansing. And, and that's why, the, that's, this gets back to how does John the Baptist prepare people to receive Jesus? He calls them to repentance. And the people who repent are ready to receive Jesus, and the people who don't aren't. Which is why in John's gospel, even though the word repent is never used in John's gospel um, directly, the issue that trips people up is Jesus claims the deity and Jesus teaching on sin. So in John 8, right, he, go, go to John 8. <coughs> Sorry. Mm. I've, I've said this before, and I'll probably say it again, but in John's gospel, there's believing and then there's believing. And so even though, so, so John's way of coming at this is by making it clear there's something you can do that he can call believing that isn't going to profit you anything. And here's one of the examples, 830. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, <coughs> if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, this, they don't like that. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone, which is a ridiculous claim. Just read your Old Testament. They are enslaved to Egypt, at times to the Philistines and the Canaanites. They are enslaved to the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Assyrians, and now they're pretty much enslaved to Rome, pretty much, right? Um, 
<coughs> but Jesus makes it clear he's talking about slavery to sin. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, he said to the Jews who had believed in him. I'm just filling that in from verse 30 of 31. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. And if you keep reading, it becomes clear Jesus is saying, your dad's the devil, he said to the Jews who had believed in him. So in John's gospel, there's believing and there's believing. And these guys did something that you can call believing, that Jesus can indicate they're still slaves to sin, their father's the devil, and they're trying to kill Jesus. And verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, he said to the Jews who had believed in him. So that's where John raises some of these questions of, well, then how does that, how does that work? Um, and we'll, we'll get to them, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, I lost my trade. How do, what was the question? How do we get here? I'm, I told you, you got to pray for my combobulation. God's power is made perfect in weakness. And he's doing a lot of demonstrating his power this morning. I'm telling you that cause I'm out of it. But, uh, what was the question? It was you- uh, identifying with, okay. It was, yes, it was identifying. Okay. Yeah. So, so John, yes, I get it now. So John's calling people to repent. These people stumble because Jesus is implying they're slaves to sin, which is why they're going to hate Jesus. The two seem to go hand in hand. Like, if you're willing to deal with your slavery to sin, then Jesus is beautiful and delightful. Let's go, go back to John 3. It's the same exact reason there. That's, sorry, I got my train of thought now. I'm back on, lost it for a second. Back on the choo-choo train of thought. Um, that was terrible. Verse 19, John 3, 19. Um, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. So now we're going to find out why people reject Jesus. Why do people not come to Jesus? And it's not because they have real honest questions and doubts that they haven't had answers to. It's because they hate the light. It's moral. I mean, this On John's terms, this is why the darkness didn't overcome the light. This is why men reject Christ. For everyone... Um, well, just let me read 19 to 20 to 21 again. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. The reason you don't come to Jesus is you love your sin, which is why John the Baptist prepares people to receive Christ by telling them, calling them to deal with their sin. Um, and so getting baptized was a big deal. You're you're supposed to be a Jew. You're, you're participating in temple worship. You're supposed to be ceremonially clean multiple times a week. I need a head-to-toe bath by a third party because I'm so filthy and sinful. That's, that's a pretty – and I'm going to do that publicly. That's a big deal. Um, and so the people were getting uncomfortable. Some of the Pharisees were really getting – what's, what's all this baptizing stuff? And so those who came out and would confess their uncleanness and their need to repent are the ones – we're going to see this in the following weeks as we go through chapter one. Where does Jesus gather his first disciples? In the camp of John the Baptist. So he did exactly what he was supposed to do, preparing people to receive him. So, okay, that's, that's, I picked up my train of thought. Yeah, thank you. Other questions? Anything else? Bridget again. 
Sorry, I got a cough drop in the no, no idea. Someone else is talking, accent. so might as well. Um, so is what you were kind of just talking about, is that sort of like um, lordship salvation versus just a general belief? In God? Is that kind of what you're making points, it? points, Bridget. <laughs> words. This is the debate that the lordship debate brings up. What is the nature of saving faith? I mean, however you want to come at it. So, I mean, and everyone's got an issue with that. What I'm trying to show is John's gospel puts on the table, there's believing and there's believing. Now, how you resolve that, what you take that to mean, and how you distinguish between an eight, the people who believed, who Jesus says are sons of the devil. I mean, unless you deny, I've talked to one person I know who tries to argue with me. Um, I love him to death, but this is crazy. That, no, he argues that midway through that narrative, Jesus starts talking to different people. And it's only because John says, if you believed, you're saved. And this says they believe, so it can't be the same people. I'm like, show me grammatically where that happens. Well, it has to be. Unless you like start with the assumption this can't be doing that. Um, Clearly, these are people who you, in some sense, you can say believe something about Jesus. And yet they're not. Go go to John 2. This isn't the only place. There's at least three places in John where people are said to believe something. And I'll show you all three of them. Now, the lordship issue or non-lordship issue then is different attempts to settle what that distinction is. I'm just showing that John puts on the table is th- that there's something you can call faith that at the time isn't benefiting people. And then what you plug in your definitions to be the, what's, what's saving faith and not saving faith? What's the distinction? Well, that's where someone from the lordship camp would have a different answer than someone from a different camp. I'm just showing that John in the text puts it on the table as a valid question. Um, not trying to answer it yet. I will. Um, but no, very, in- Bridget, very insightful, straight to the point. But in John 2, here's this, I'll show you three of them. Here's the second. Um, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, which is word for word, the formula of 1-12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. I absolutely think John expects us, he's intending for some cognitive distance. Wait, what? You just said a chapter ago that whoever meet this condition, he gave the right to become children of God. Here, he's giving them the Heisman. He's not entrusting himself to them. I, I'm going to argue that this is the introduction to the Nicodemus story, that, that he's going to explain why this is. He's not just going to leave us hanging going, what's up with that? That when we see and track the interaction with Nicodemus, it'll make more sense. Look, because look, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs you can do unless God is with him. When he was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name and they saw the signs he was doing. Here's a guy showing up who saw some signs. And I suggest to you that that whole Jesus didn't entrust himself to them is exactly what you see with Jesus' response you can't see anything unless you're born again, Nick. Jesus does not say, that's really observant of you, Nick. Good for you. Um, let me help you take a little further. I mean, the difference between how he interacts with Nicodemus and the woman at the well, who actively tries to run from him, right? Call your husband. I have no husband. You're right. You have no husband. You've had five. Speaking of husbands, which mountain should we be worshiping? I mean, she's changing the topic, right? And Jesus pursues her. Nicodemus here, and I think it's tied up. Nicodemus is showing up 
to evaluate Jesus. Just as we've seen the Jews send the delegation to John the Baptist to size him up, Nicodemus says, we know. He's representing a group. And if you've got an ESV, you'll see that starting in verse 11, Jesus starts speaking to Nicodemus with plurals. If you got your, if your Bible's got footnotes, like mine does, it says, the Greek for you is plural here. So I'll do the Southern y'all. And so starting in verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you all, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you all do not receive our testimony. If I've told you all, earth... so Nicodemus shows up representing a group and Jesus then speaks to him as though he's representing a group, which fits perfectly with why Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them at the end of two. He doesn't need people testifying to him. So plug all that together. Nicodemus is there to see whether the Pharisees are going to get on board with this whole Jesus thing. With the implied, with our backing, Jesus, we can do something for you. If we got on board and we promoted you, you got our endorsement, Jesus doesn't need that. He doesn't need anyone testifying concerning him. So what do they believe about Jesus? Well, they believe he's a miracle worker from God. They believe that much, right? So Nicodemus is a picture of one of these people who thinks this much about Jesus. Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because he doesn't need their endorsement. And then the Nicodemus encounter pictures that so we understand what he's talking about. But there's a second example of someone believing something that isn't. Nicodemus will eventually come to faith. But right here, make no mistake, verse 12, if I have told you all earthly things and you all do not believe. So Jesus defines Nicodemus right now as a not believing one of at least the things Jesus has said. He's going to make two more appearances in the gospel. He's going to advocate for Jesus against the Pharisees. Does our law condemn someone without giving them a hearing? And then he is going to show up and collect the body of Jesus, publicly identifying as a disciple. So Nicodemus is eventually going to get there. But right now, he's representing the not-believing Pharisees group. Last, last place, John 12. We got time. We're good. So this is kind of the summary of the first section. If, if you'll remember the brief outline I tried to give you, chapters 1 to 12, Jesus' public ministry, three or four years, depending on whether or not the unnamed Feast of the Jews is a, is a uh, Passover or not. Then 13 to 17 is the private ministry in the upper room, three or four hours. And then 18 to 21 is his passion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, three or four weeks. So this is the close of Jesus' public ministry. And you get, just as the this section opens with a prologue in chapter one, you get this summary statement at the end. <coughs> Hold on. Verse 36. The end of verse 36. This terrible verse division. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, then we get this middle category. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. 
which is a reference to five. So put your finger here and go to 544. No, no, no. This, this is important. 44. This is in the notes. I didn't, I didn't go there this morning, but why, why are the Pharisees not interested? Remember, because try to tie this together. John the Baptist says, I am the one preparing the way for the Lord coming so that his glory will be revealed. And when Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, he says this, this scathing indictment to them, verse 44, how can you believe? And the clear implication of this rhetorical question is you cannot. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? So given that, go back to 1243, and when you hear that many believed but weren't willing to go public because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God, at the very least, there's a big question mark over this group. Maybe they will eventually overcome that fear and go public, but right now I would not say this group is settled or safe or secure because of Jesus' statement that if at the end of the day you love the glory that comes from man, not the glory that comes from God, you can't believe. Jesus says that. And John is referencing that clearly here. So there's this group of people. We'll, we'll see. Time will tell. It'll resolve itself one way or the other. So there are at least three instances of faith in John that I think John puts question marks over or, or makes it a little more complicated than that. That's, so once you see that, then John wants us to try to piece together a more robust understanding of what faith is. And in James's way of talking about it is there's dead faith and there's alive faith. And, you know, but this is John's way of showing us it's not as simple as, well, they believe, so they're good. Well, mm, you got to work with it. You got you to press it, press through. Um, and and we'll, we'll deal with this more in detail when we get to the end of chapter two into Nicodemus. But um, very, very astute, Bridget. 15 points. When you get 20 points, you get a cup of coffee. Or with no points, you can have a cup of coffee too, but hey. Um, okay. Any other questions? Linda. Okay, so you were just saying about Jesus doesn't need the testimony of man, yep. but yet that was the whole purpose of John the Baptist's life was to testify to him. Mm-hmm. So are you saying just for, he doesn't need unbelievers testimony about him because they're not going to really continue to follow him? Yes. It's connected with him knowing what was in them. And even in five where he gives his credentials, he's like, okay, I got the man, John the Baptist. Not that my testimony is from man. My testimony is also from the Father. My testimony is from the works. My testimony is from Moses. So Jesus in John 5 is going to point to four lines of verification. John the Baptist, the people recognize as a prophet. God the Father speaking publicly at his baptism, his miracles, and the Old Testament scriptures of Moses. I'm not going to condemn you, he says. Moses will. Moses will rise up and condemn you because if you believed him, you believe me. So, yes, John the Baptist is one of the testimonies. But Jesus does not need generic man's testimony. Jesus doesn't need a PR campaign. He doesn't, no. But, I mean, we think about today's political thing. Like, you know, if you get the teacher's union behind you, that'll really boost you. He doesn't need any of that. And especially from people like the Pharisees. And so I think when you take that clarification in two, it puts on the table that what Nicodemus is suggesting is, perhaps we'll back you, Jesus. Perhaps we'll endorse you. And 
I, I think the whole reason Jesus' response to Nicodemus may seem almost harsh, I, that might be strong, but have you not read John 3 and been like, man, that's kind of abrupt? Nicodemus shows up saying things that sound respectful, sound, they may not be far enough, but they're certainly not bad. Teacher, we know you're from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, you can't even see the kingdom. I think what Jesus is doing is fundamentally rejecting Nicodemus as his examiner, his interlocutor, his, his, who are you to think you can size me up, Nicodemus? What makes you think you'd see truth and know you saw it if you saw it? That didn't say that very well, did I? What makes you know truth if you saw it? What makes you think you're in a position to evaluate me? That's my read on Jesus' response to Nicodemus. Right. Who are you to audit the auditor? Excellent. Yes. Um, and I think that explains why Jesus hits him. Not confrontation, but yeah, there's a challenge there. I mean, he's basically calling him blind. I think you're blind. And eventually you, you call yourself the teacher of Israel. You're not tracking with me. Better go back to school. You know, and, and, it's it's there's some conflict with Nicodemus, at least tension. I mean, not conflict, people yelling at each other, but they're not in one accord. Jesus is correcting him. Jesus is is schooling him. He's he's rebuking him. Um, he is, yeah, setting him straight. Lee. Well, I wonder when I I see that the signs um, that Jesus is doing, are they? They're not. I mean, the people that believe that don't, the belief doesn't benefit them, that believe but aren't saved, yeah. put it that way. They see the signs. Yes. They're impressed. And then there's also people, I'm sure, that yeah. saw the signs and believed and were saved. Yes. So how did the signs go well, both that's, ways? That's, that's a great question. <laughs> so go to John 2. We're going to look at John 2, we're going to look at John 6, and hopefully try to answer it. That's, no, that's a great question. Um, if I could make a terrible pun, it's not a pun. Signs signify something. They point to something. The people that benefit from the signs understand what the sign is signifying. Jesus is going to say that to the people who ate the bread. You didn't. He says, you didn't see the sign. You only came because you ate the bread. But then you want to say, wait a second, that is the sign. No, they didn't figure out what the sign was pointing to. They just saw he created food. And if you don't make the next step, he's the bread come down from heaven. It's not going to help you. In 2, John 2, the first sign, we get this connection. This goes back to the prologue, we beheld his glory. Pressing it through till you see the glory of God in it. 2.11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now that's a sign being seen by faith and properly pressing through. If that happens, it's profitable. But now go to six, where he's uh, Jesus, the miracle caterer to a big crowd of people. <coughs> Sorry. Mm. Um, 14. Yeah, so, so we'll start again, 14. The people saw the sign that he had done. They said, and then they're, they're crediting with Deuteronomy 18. This is indeed the prophet who's come into the world, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew himself. So then they spot that he's on the other side of the lake. So they come around the other side of the lake and they say to him, 
uh, verse 25. When they found me on the side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? <laughs> we had to see meeting you here, Jesus. They saw him. That's why they went. They're like, oh, hey. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Well, in a sense, they did see the sign. They saw the bread multiplied. But Jesus is saying, you don't get it. You're just here because you're hungry. You haven't made that next step in, in thinking. And so that's the type of signs. And what that's going to happen is really fast. They're going to ask Jesus to do it again. So um, do not work for the food, which... Okay, yeah. So verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may believe in you? And then they give Jesus a hint of what they have in mind. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Hint, hint. I mean, these people are brash. They follow him to the other side of the sea. Oh, fancy meeting you here. Oh, what sign are you going to do? You, I could eat. Uh, <laughs> I could eat. <laughs> right. So, so that, and, and again, as we're part of like, why is John's gospel not like a eight verse tract? To show us some of these things. What is seeing a sign that doesn't profit? It's just seeing, you're getting an example. Because this is the crowd that by the end of this, even in the contrast, they want to make him king. And as he starts saying hard words about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, they're going to go away in droves. And then Jesus is going to look at the 12 and say, thanks for sticking by me. No, he's going to say, do you two also want to leave? I mean, this is, this is a hard turn here to the people who wanted to make him king. And so John, I think, is showing us some like, like the card trick. This looks really good. They want to take him by force and make him king. Look at it from this angle. Oh, no. And you're starting to learn, both through positive example and negative example, what faith that profits looks like, what seeing signs that profits looks like. So th these are precisely the things we're supposed to keep our eyes open and watch. And see. It's, it's like the same thing with today with the Jews who totally missed it. Now, of course, we're not totally missing it. They, they leave the text. I mean, that thing was so tragic that these things happened to Bethany. I, I mean, doesn't it scream like they're going to say, well, where is he? And just the fact that there's no further event. We're back in John 1 now. But it's just these things took place across from Bethany. Now, they leave, they leave the narrative here. We stay with the narrative. And one verse later, John's going to point him out. So for the so there's a sort of double drama here for the irony for these people from the religious leaders who are supposed to be the bigwigs religiously and they don't either don't care, they don't pick up on, they're not interested in who John's saying is and what he says he's doing. But we're also reading, and where's the next place we go? John's pointing them out. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So for the reader, what he's just that that bomb he's just dropped if he's here is immediately followed up on the next day. So there's no doubt this isn't when these people were interrogating him. So that would be three reasons why this week matters. Why is day one important? It's the day the delegation was sent, but it's also, I think, potentially the first day Jesus is back. So reconstructing from the other Gospels, in Mark, he's baptized by the Spirit and immediately driven into the wilderness for 40 days. It looks like he returned and he left from John the Baptist's camp because he's baptized in John the Baptist and he's immediately in the wilderness. So now apparently he comes back to John the Baptist's camp after 40 days. I mean, it's conceivable he went somewhere else first, but it, it makes perfect sense. If you left John the Baptist's camp to go in the wilderness, when you're done being in the wilderness, you come back to John the Baptist's camp. 
And then he spends a week here with John the Baptist and his disciples. The other thing I think is significant is in chapter 2, too, Jesus has disciples. Jesus goes from completely unknown in John the Baptist camp to a teacher with disciples in a week's time. That means Jesus is incredibly compelling, self-authenticating, and and he these people don't take weeks and months to figure out what they think of him. In fact, oh, that's why the, that's why John's disciples don't like it in chapter three. They're getting upset. No, no, yes, no. Let me yeah, let me show you. So, day one. So, if you want to look through the days of John's week, day one. John's dealing with religious leaders in Jerusalem, and we learn Jesus is among somewhere. He's somewhere here. We don't know where he is, but he's among you as one you don't know. Day two, John points out Jesus. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is him. And then he gives some more backstory on his ministry baptizing. Verse 35, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and now we're going to see the first of John's disciples gravitate over to Jesus. Um, And he was looking at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So now the movement from John's, he must increase and I must decrease. This is the beginning of John's decrease, and Jesus increasing. And they go with Jesus. The two disciples heard him say this, began following Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, come and you shall see. So they came and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day. So they go and they stay in the same house. And there's an, I think there's another day now. This is, they spend the night there. It was about the 10th hour. One of the two that heard John speak following Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we found the Messiah. Andrew spent the afternoon and the evening with Jesus, and the next day he's like, we found the Messiah. That's how compelling Jesus was to these people. That's how quickly they made up their minds. It was not like four months long. and that, that's, that's the difference from the Jews with their sort of checklists of why are you baptizing? And the people who had already received... These are people who've already received John's baptism. These are people who've already repented and, and recognized their sinfulness. Well, they're totally ready to see Jesus. And for those people, this is very, and that's, that's what marks Jesus' interaction with the next people, right? So they found the Messiah. Nathaniel, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew. And he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses, the law and the prophets wrote. Whoa, that's fast. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip saw him and said, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And again, that was fast. And so Jesus is convincing and getting these religious, fastidious, devout Jewish men to confess the greatest mess. We're now at the normal messianic titles. We started thinking what the meaning was the word is an unusual title. We've just got him of whom Moses, the law and the prophets wrote the son of God and the Messiah. And it's coming out quickly from these men. That's part of what you're right. Oh yeah. If you're taking John and if John's whole message is, yeah, if John the Baptist's whole point is coming right on my heels is the one the Lord's sending. 
then boom, they see Jesus and yep, that's him. And they're confessing him. And so Jesus on the third day, chapter two, verse two, he's got a band of disciples, took him a week to form. (laughs) That's pretty. So one of the other things I get from John's week is Jesus got up to, if this is the on-ramp to Jesus ministry, it didn't take him long to get up to teacher, rabbi with a group of disciples going places, doing stuff. Took him about a week. That's pretty impressive. Because we're keeping track. The wedding's day seven. Three days. It's it's like the resurrection is on the third. Three days later, from the last day we had. Yes, Chris. So this isn't a new one. This is actually kind of a doubling down on the first thing I said. The more we talk about this, and you exposing how in uh, twelve. Uh, chapter 12, verse 39, it actually goes to quote that section of having ears to hear. Yeah. It almost looks like the section from John 1 to John 12 is a parade of what it looks like to have ears to hear versus not to. Yeah. And just example after example of, well, this is a little complicated and hard to understand. Those with ears to hear were like, I recognize that. Yeah. And those without are like, Mm, okay, whatever, crickets chirp. And then it results in chapter 13 making the switch over to, okay, the guys without ears to hear, they're going to kill him now. Yeah. In fact, if you want to break 1 to 12 and a half, I'd say 1 to 4 is the beginnings of faith. The bad guys get introduced, we get some of their stuff, but you're going to get um, the beginning of Nicodemus who eventually will come to faith, the woman at the well, the entire Samaritan village coming to faith. That's the high point of Jesus' public ministry. This is as good as it gets, and it doesn't get that good ever, ever again, again. Um, is John 4 with the Samaritan village. And then starting in 5, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. It's centered on the, the feasts, and now the rise of the opposition. I mean, there's a couple people of faith, but the tenor is watch the opposition rise. And um, to your point about yeah. how quickly people are flocking to him it looks like when they have ears to hear it's that you know my sheep hear my voice it doesn't take much longer for them because they're already anticipating it and ready but for those without ears to hear it's like i'm gonna need a lot more data to figure this out yeah let me let me end then with our time with john seven this is one of my favorite one more question oh one more question zeb Go, Zeb. Well, so uh, just figured I'd open this uh, can of worms with three minutes minutes left. Because yeah, um, (laughs) so you you, you said something that that piqued my uh, theology uh, antennas a little bit. Um, You made a reference, not a it wasn't a huge point, but a passing reference to faithful Jews today. Can you explain how someone can be a faithful Jew today with no temple? And rejection of the say Messiah. Faithful or say adherence. I mean, though they're pagan, unbelieving, going to hell people, but they're holding fast to a form of they're enemies of the cross. That's Paul's term. Sure. No, no, no. Yeah, no confusion. I, I, I knew. People, I knew what you meant. I yes, knew what you meant. Yes, but yes, it was no, like no. I could see somebody getting very. No, like, no, no, no. There's no, a lot no, of no. people that are confused yes. by that. No, no. The people who reject the Messiah and are trying to practice Judaism sans Jesus today are enemies of the cross, dead in their sins. The wrath of God abides on them. Full stop. The sad irony being those people are looking for the Messiah. That's all I was trying to say is that that was the expectation 2,000 years ago. 
And that's still the expectation today, tragically. No, 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 no. I, let me, if there's any ambiguity on that point, I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting, I know there are some like Christianity is one way to God and Judaism is another way to God. If anyone, if anyone could do it, oh, hey, there's a mic here. So no, there's just within our sort of uh, theological camp, there's an awful lot of people who have this idea that Jews are saved. That they know that, or yes, that there's that there is an that there is a salvific, uh, an ultimately salvific aspect of national Judaism. That you, if you're Jewish. You're good to go. There's people like it's it's silly and it's sure. completely let, not. Let me, let me, yeah. That comes from to my it's hyper, knowledge. It's that hyper dispensational. From, that it's comes like a from wacky a thing. Bad footnote in the Schofield Bible that I think got. Yeah, but it's it's got some. It's spread. That's the problem. It I mostly see people accusing dispensationalists. This. I'd less dispensationalists actually saying it. But let me let me say clearly, unbelieving Israel should only expect covenant curses. Deuteronomy is really clear. Um, they should expect discipline, punishment, cursings, and that Israel today has no divine claim on the land. They may have a just claim on the land, meaning it may be the case, and I think frequently it is when I look at it, that the other people are attacking them. And so there may be a just claim to land. There's no divine claim to land until they're covenantally faithful, and they won't be covenantally faithful until they look on him whom they've pierced and mourn from as one mourns for an only son, Zechariah 12 at which point they would be messianic, believing Jews. So yes, I do believe in a future conversion of Israel, that they'll look on him en masse, that they've pierced, but then there'll be Jews who believe in their Messiah, and then covenant blessings could pertain. So no, any blind Zionism that just says Israel's always right needs to go read Deuteronomy 29 um, and 28, and the curses and the blessings. While they're unfaithful, they only to the degree that they want to claim to be God's covenant people, then you're getting covenant curses, baby. That's what you're getting. No, I mean, like that's, that's the covenant. I wouldn't be claiming that, but yeah. And I'm I'm certainly not arguing against that. I was, I was just hoping, or I was hoping to give you an opportunity to clarify that because I could definitely see. You gave me an opportunity to clarify two things. Thank you, Zeb. All right, cool. God bless. Godspeed. Good day.